Hello, Mondo Mercado podcast listeners. Like many of you, we're adjusting to the new world of COVID-19. But don't worry, we are going to have new episodes coming up for you real soon. In the meantime, we want to show you a side project that we've been working on with the Japan America Society of Georgia called Rekipodo. We'll be sharing a couple of episodes, to, and pretty soon we'll be offering new episodes of Mondo Mercado for your listening pleasure. So, without further ado, here's Rekipodo. <laughs> The Japan America Society of Georgia presents Rekipodo, Japanese Stories in Time. Rekipodo is an entertainment podcast where a group of friends share stories based on the history of the nation of Japan. Okay, hi. So I'm uh, Jim Hoadley. I'm uh, with the uh, Japan America Society uh, on the uh, Programs Committee, and I am also the Associate Director of the Center for International Business Education Research at Georgia Tech. Hello, everyone. My name is Yoshi Domoto. I'm the Executive Director of the Japan America Society of Georgia, and so thrilled to be on this podcast and looking forward to having a fun dialogue about today's topic. Hi, everyone. I'm Nozomi Morgan. I am the co-chair of the program committee, um, along with, with Jim, and I am the CEO of Michki Morgan Worldwide. We are a consulting firm here based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And so great to be here. Well, it's fantastic to be with everybody today, and we're here to talk about, this is going to be the inaugural uh, episode uh, of our podcast, and we're here to talk about something that is uh, coming up uh, to uh, coincide with the uh, the watch party that we have coming up in the Japan American Society. We're going to be watching uh, the uh, movie The Last Samurai, starring Tom Cruise and uh, Watanabe Ken. And you know, it's a movie. It's it's got some age to it, and it's a historical ish drama. But I I wonder how much people uh, actually understand about it, and and. I think the, the real story is in some ways even more fascinating than, than the movie. So what do Nozomi, you, you went to, to school in, in Japan. Um, what did they tell you about the, the period that was uh, covered in The Last Samurai, the, the so-called Bakumatsu period, the end of the shogunal rule? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. Um, so I, I, I grew up in Japan. I was born and raised in Japan. So I actually, um, and I have also lived in the States and I currently live here, obviously. <laughs> but that said, so I've gone through the Japanese education system um, all the way from elementary school to college. That's it. When you talk about Bakumatsu or we talk about history, sometimes I feel like it's not as detailed or they don't teach it as well. And, and some part of me feel like we learn more about other people's history. Like, um, and also, it's really interesting. We talk about world history. The world usually means the Europe, uh, European history more than the the whole rest of the world. But yeah. um, but that said, so Bakumatsu basically it's the end after uh, it's it's towards the end of the samurai period where Japan is transitioning into the so called modernized world where we want to catch up with the Western and 
you know, really want to be, uh, they want to become in the future, they want to become a power of, of, uh, of the world. So it's a very interesting time. There's a, there's that transition time of values and there's transition of culture and also there's transition, transition of like, there's, there's these different heroes that appear. And for example, we hear a lot about Shinsengumi and Takamoto Ryoma and all the figures that show up that are very heroic and they're young and they're ambitious. And, and we've seen so many we call it like drama, like TV programs, movies, like every year, a new young Japanese actor uh, would play one of those roles. And you see it over and over and over, remade over and over again. Both of you have seen the movie, right? Oh, The Last Samurai? Yes. Yes. Uh, Yoshi, you've seen The Last Samurai? Yes, I've seen all two hours and 40 minutes of it, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't Purposely, remember that. I, actually, I haven't seen it recently. I, I... Um, I did not remember that it was that long. <laughs> oh, I, I kind of cheated, Jen. Uh, I was you know, basically promoting our Netflix watch party coming up Saturday, May 23rd, and, and basically saw that it was two hours, 40 minutes. So I want to know that it was oh, okay. two hours. And okay. Uh, that includes credits and stuff. Right? Yeah, it does. It does. It's, it's an entertaining film. What did you think about the historical accuracy of it? Well, I think it's, it's somewhat historically accurate in that the, the premise, um, you know, the, obviously, as Nozomi-san said, that uh, the era uh, where, you know, Japan, this was a critical time in Japan's history where they were kind of basically moving away from the era of the shogun into modernity. And you know, so I think they kind of do their best to capture the era a little bit because um, obviously the, the story wouldn't make sense unless you kind of talk about the historical background of it. But I, I think it's somewhat accurate. In that, you know, they did have someone outside of Japan, foreigner, I guess this is one of the, the first gaijins, right, to, to come to maybe and to basically teach um, the, the quote unquote, the modern way of doing warfare. So so in that aspect, I think it's 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 historically accurate. But then at the same time, they, they did change a whole lot of kind of details. Uh, a lot of, lot of important stuff, which we'll get to in just a second. Yes. <laughs> yes so. So, so I think they did their best, but at the same time, it's more Hollywood than history um, in a way. Well, you know, both of you are are very well educated on on Japanese history and, and, you know, the difference between an emperor and a shogun. But when I was watching the film, I watched it in America because I was living in the U.S. at the time. My thought was, I don't know how American audiences are, the average American citizen is a person, you know, film goer would have watched this and would have understood what the difference was between the shogun and the emperor. So if, if I can beg a couple of minutes for the, the because we wanted people to understand this better, would you mind if I explain kind of what that difference was? Please do, yeah. So the the imperial line in Japan, and there's debate about this and whether, I mean, it's so old, it's, it's do we know for sure that this is the case or not? But the official record says in roughly the year 660 BC, the emperor Jimmu established what became the imperial line of Japan, which goes through to the current emperor today. So that's that's a little bit of a while ago, 660 BC. Yeah, that that's that's a bit back there. But so you have an imperial line that's going through and I, there's a whole lot of interesting intrigue that goes on between 660 and the next date that I'm going to throw out. You know, we don't want this to turn into, uh, you know, Japanese history 101. And I want to jump forward to 1185 from basically 660 BC to 1185. The imperial family is in charge. And then in 1185, 
basically things get kind of messed up and the imperial line has basically these families that are fighting over the control of the imperial line which is also confusing because these families are originated in branches of the imperial line the uh, the minamoto family and the Taira family or the Heike and the Genji family, which is just a different pronunciation for the, for the same name. So in 1185, Minamoto no Yoritomo declares himself to be Shogun, the first Shogun. And he says, I'm going to rule in the name of the emperor, but really, since I have all the warriors and swords and everything like that, I'm the one who makes all the rules. And so he picks up and he also says, and I'm tired of all of the intrigue that's going on in Kyoto. So he picks up and he moves to Kamakura. And also really uh, knowing his way to exit the stage after he's done this, uh, very shortly after becoming uh, the first shogun, he dies. And uh, his his widow's family, uh, the Hojo family, kind of takes over uh, control of the shogunate. And so at this point, you have the shogun and you have the uh, the emperor. And if anybody has watched the, the, the pretty decent history of Japan by Bill Wirtz on YouTube, go and look at it. Uh, it's it does use some adult language, but it's really good. Basically, he says, make no I'll, I'll steal the line exactly from him. He says, you know, there is still an emperor and the emperor still gets to wear emperor, the emperor wears nice clothes and have nice things. But make no mistake, the shogun is where the power is. And so that goes through a period of time for several hundred years uh, until 1336, when the Ashikaga family, which has now taken over the shogunal line, decides to move the shogunate back to Kyoto to get it closer to the emperor, more of a consolidation of power. You still have a shogun, you still have an emperor, but they're now in, in Kyoto instead of being out in, in Kamakura. That goes with the Ashikaga family. The Ashikaga family, if you've been to Kyoto, you've seen things probably that were built by the Ashikaga family. Kinkakuji was built by one of the Ashikaga shoguns. Uh, Ginkakuji was built by one of the Ashikaga shoguns. There are many other uh, things that were, were built in Kyoto that are remnants of the Ashikaga shoguns. That continues on from 1336 until 1467, which is the time of the Onin War, which temporarily the shogunate falls, the, the, the Ashikaga shogunate falls. They, basically, there's a disagreement on, on succession. The whole place blows up. They burn down half of the city. The country then moves into a warring states period. The warring states period goes through, and this is, I, I feel really bad for skipping through this because this is probably one of the most important, uh, other than the Bakumatsu, this is probably like the second most important part in Japanese history is the period after the Oni War is the so-called warring states period, which is then the country finally gets consolidated and it gets consolidated under one guy or one family, which is Tokugawa Ieyasu who becomes the shogun, declares himself shogun in 1603. So we've gone forward from 1477 to 1603. He then moves his shogunate close to Kamakura, a little bit further north. He moves it to a tiny little fishing village called Edo, totally closes off the country to the outside world, which is really important to our story. So basically, well, he doesn't do it. It's actually one of his, his successors. It's, pretty, it's I think it's 1648, I believe, is pretty close. Well, he closes the country off to the outside world so that the only way that the Japanese can interact with the outside world is through basically three locations that they can interact with China through Okinawa. They can interact with Korea through uh, Tsushima, and they can very famously interact with the Dutch, who were the selected foreign power that on this 
island in the middle that they've constructed in the middle of Nagasaki Bay uh, called Dejima. But now all of the power is in the shogunate. The first thing that the Tokugawa shoguns do is they take extreme control over everybody. They, they tear down a lot of the castles. They disarm a whole lot of people. Uh, they make guns go away uh, because in the process of bringing the country together, uh, the three unifiers that came, you know, Tokugawa Yasu being the third one, they used weapons that they had gotten from uh, the Portuguese, which had really upset the balance of things and allowed uh, Oda Nobunaga to be so successful as a military leader. So that's why they're controlling influence and, and interaction with the outside world. And this goes on from, so let's say, 1648 until 1854. And what happens in 1854? Everybody should know. The Kurobune, right? Yes, the black ships, the Kurobune. Matthew Perry, who this is before he was on Friends, shows up in Tokyo Bay. That's Commodore Matthew Perry. Uh, and so he has these, these uh, steam-powered ships large with large guns, and it's very impressive. It's kind of – it's – the outside world has developed technologically, militarily, and basically they force Japan to open itself. First, in 1854, they get the convention of Kanagawa, which uh, gives the Americans the right to make ports of call in uh, Kanagawa, which today is part of uh, Yokohama City. And then they, re they negotiate another series of treaties in 1858. They're called the uh, Anse Treaties. Uh, the first one uh, negotiated by Townsend Harris for the U.S., the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, which opens up now additional ports. You've got Shimoda, you've got Hakodate, uh, Nagasaki, Niigata and Hyogo, uh, present day Kobe, these are all now open to foreign exchange. And the Anse treaties was actually uh, negotiations, not just with the US. The Treaty of Amity and Commerce was the one that was negotiated with the US, but there were additional treaties negotiated with the Dutch, the Russians, the British, and the French. And they all got all foreign nationals living in Japan get extraterritoriality, which means they're not beholden to the laws that govern the Japanese people. It's really not a fair system for everybody. Because of this, there's a lot of disagreement between the various political factions in Japan, and it all starts to come apart. The Tokugawa shogunate, which has been you know, in power since 1603, they recognize that they need to update for the times. And so they go out and they reach out for foreigners, as Nozomi, as you were talking about, they reach out for, for foreigners who are experts in various things. And this is kind of what the movie is making reference to. Now, what the movie kind of does wrong is that in the 1860s, people might be aware that there was kind of something militarily going on in the United States, which kind of took up a lot of our attention, and then the recovery from that. So they weren't really looking to the U.S. that much. They did get some things from the U.S which we'll talk about in, in about a second. But they, they brought in uh, the British, they brought in Germans, uh, and they brought in, to advise them, they brought in Emperor uh, Napoleon III uh, sent a, a group of advisors to the shogunate to make them happy of, of French advisors, which included a guy named Jules Brunet. Now, Jules Brunet was an interesting guy. He had been in, in the French military. He actually uh, served during the French intervention in Mexico in 1862 to 1864. And he's part of the party. He's not the leader, but he's part of the, the group of French who are brought over by the, in 1867 by the shogunate to 
advise. So they're advising them on how to use Western weapons. So that's similar to what you see in the film. The difference, of course, is that the advisors that had come over were French and not American. So during this time, the, the shogunate, of course, trying to trying to uh, uh, to build up, trying to get westernized, as Nozomi said, um, they're they're not as it is depicted in the film. They're not shunning Western military technology. They're trying to get it actually. But what happens in 1868 or thereabouts is the emperor, Emperor Kome, and the Tokugawa shogun at the time, uh, Iemachi. Uh, sorry, 1866, they both died fairly close to each other. And the people who took over for them, who received their position, in the case of the imperial line, it was Emperor Meiji. And in the case of the, the shogunal system, it was Tokugawa Yoshinobu, who people really didn't like. What happens in 1868 is that the shogun uh, Yoshinobu resigns and says, I give up my power and I return it back to the emperor. And as you can imagine, when you have that kind of a change, not everybody's happy with this. So what do you think happens next? Well, Jim, um, the, the interesting thing is um, in the movie, The Last Samurai, I think um, Tom Cruise's character is actually hired on by the Japanese um, emperor, right? Um, but in real life, Jules Brunet was hired by the, the shogun. Um, so there's a little right. bit of there. So, um, but, but anyway, yes. But going back to your question, what happens next? Uh, I believe um, all of the, uh, you know, the traditionalists or um, the people uh, in the, the shogun faction um, did not want to kind of give up their power and, um, and have all the power go back to the emperor. So there was a faction who um, kind of basically became rebels and kind of fought against uh, the changing of the guard, I guess, quote unquote. And then um, our, our French gaijin from, from, from Paris, or where is he from, um, was part of the rebel alliance, if you, if you can kind of put it in those terms. I think he was from somewhere in Alsace. Alsace. Belfort, okay. Belfort. For yeah, which is in Elsa. So I just wanted to say, yeah. I had no clue. So, like I said, I, I did grow up in Japan, I did go through the Japanese education system, and I did decently well, but I did not know about this French person um, at all. So, it's really interesting how, um, how education they omit something. Maybe they've taught it, they taught us, I just didn't pay attention. <laughs> um, did, did, no, let me, did you ever hear the expression Oya Toe Gai Kokujin? Because that was the term that was used for all, not just Jules Brunet, but all of the foreigners who were brought over as experts to yeah. uh, help modernize. Yeah, definitely. We, so we definitely, uh, in the history, they talked a lot about, uh, well, because that was the time of when, you know, Japan was really looking outside to, to catch up. So they wanted to learn everything, right? Basically, from the law to the system, how you run the country, the warfare, like everything. Um, so yes, definitely heard that, definitely learned that, but I didn't know the story and I didn't know about, um, that he, that there was a French, um, person who was actually helping, um, or in particular, but I do know like the, com the, the countries are backing up certain, certain, uh, rebels and things like that, but I didn't know the exact like name of, of, of him. So that was really interesting to me. So uh, the interesting thing that I think from the, the movie is it also kind of mashes up two different parts 
of the, the, the Bakamatsu period because where Jules Brunet is involved in, and I want to talk a little bit more about the Boshin War, uh, which is what happens when the immediately after the emperor gets restored or as that's happening, the country's devolving into civil war. And that's where Jules Brunet is involved. But the character that's being played in the film by Watanabe Ken is very clearly uh, pretty closely based on the actual uh, historical Japanese figure Saigo Takamori. Saigo Takamori was from Kyushu, and in the Boshin War, Jules Brunet fought on the side of the pro-shogunal forces. And the only time that they may have actually, but, but uh, Saigo Takabori fought on the side of the pro-imperial, pro-Meiji restoration side. So the only time that they may have actually met at all or seen each other at all would have been on the battlefield of the Battle of uh, uh, Togu Fushimi, uh, which was a great win for the Meiji forces and a loss. It was the beginning of the loss for the shogunal forces because they were out, outnumbered. They retreated to Edo. Uh, and they, uh, in Edo, then they got pushed out there as well. And actually, uh, did either of you ever, have you ever heard of the, uh, the Ezo Republic? Yes. Yes. That's where in Hokkaido, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Ezo was the old name for Hokkaido. And so these pro shogunal forces moved to Hokkaido. They moved to Hakodate specifically because it had a, a large, European style five star fort that was built to control the straits. It was a, it was a very big stronghold that had not been destroyed as many of the castles had been uh, during the Tokugawa period because this was built in the 1850s as they were preparing for the potential arrival of Europeans and it wasn't something that just happened immediately overnight. So they take over control of of Hokkaido, which most of it is unpopulated, but Hakodate is on this little peninsula. It's, you've got a lovely mountain that if you go there, you can look down and see ocean on both sides. It's really cool. You should, you should definitely go at some point. Uh, so they're ensconced there and they have, so this is Jules Brunet is in charge and they have, so Jules Brunet is not the only one. He's brought a number of French uh, military advisors with him as well. He was told when the Meiji Restoration occurred, he was told to return to France, but he refused and said, I think that France's interests are best served by supporting the shogun, the pro-shogun forces rather than supporting the emperor. And I think that that's in the end that they're going to win. And that's the side that we need to, we need to, to be on. So they, they moved to Hokkaido. They found the Ezo Republic. They name a military leader from the shogunate, a guy named uh, Enomoto, and they declare a republic. Now, the republic, yes, people had a vote. In fact, it was the first time in Japan that there was a, what is currently Japan, that there was an open voting system, but it wasn't universal suffrage. The suffrage was limited to, I'll bet you, Nozomi, you can guess who the suffrage was limited to. Well, I'm sure it's not to women, but please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, definitely not that. I wasn't going that way, but. <laughs> I, mean to, um, I mean, we're talking about going back to the conversation we had about the classes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So not the merchants. So the samurai class. So not the merchants. It's only limited to the samurai class. Only the samurai class gets to vote in the Ezo Republic. So it's 
maintaining its shogunal roots in that you know they're only limited they're still following the old system of there are official classes and people who belong to certain classes are more equal than other people so it's equality but it's only equality for the people who are in the shogunal or in the shogunal in the in the samurai caste but they do have they do have a vote and also the in the military the military is mixed the military is mixed between the the french advisors and the uh japanese and they're treated the same they're treated as members of the same chain of command which considering you know that when we're talking about them in the movie you know they're 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 the shogunal the pro shogunate forces are de depicted as more traditionalist and 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 fearing the west and the reality is that there's just a difference of opinion the pro shogun forces were not anti west they just didn't want to give up their privileged status in society whereas the with the meiji restoration there was more still you didn't get universal suffrage but there was a broader opening of power and the the rights of the samurai class many of them went away under that rule so the Republic of Ezo only lasted about six months. They based it on the U.S. government. And they, in the end, uh, they didn't last very long. Uh, the, they were laid siege to in about April of 1869. And by June, they had surrendered. The French were supposed to be they were, you know, the, the, the pro Meiji forces really wanted to get all of the French, but the French were actually uh, evacuated by a French warship that was sitting there waiting for them. And so they all went home to France. Interesting thing about Jules Brunet uh, is that he was rather an accomplished painter. And so a lot of the stuff that we know about uh, Jules Brunet and the, the, uh, the whole period, the Republic of Ezo and the Shogunal resistance is that Jules Brunet would whip out his canvas and his paints while he was sitting in camp and he would paint very detailed pictures of what he saw around him. And he was actually pretty good. You can, you can go online and find, uh, paintings by, by Jules Brunet. Um, and the paintings that he made show very clearly that the Shogunal forces were not as they're depicted in the film being, you know, pure Japanese, we're only going to use arrows because those have honor and guns don't have honor kind of thing. Um, they had a combination of weapons. They had partially Western and partially Japanese. What allowed the Meiji forces to defeat the Republic of Ezo was not so much that it was a modernized military versus a basically iron age military but they just had better stuff it was who was able to get it wasn't that one was modernized and one was not modernized it was one was better modernized than the other an interesting little side note that the, in 1867 when we talk about the tokugawa shogunate as it's falling and it's trying to build up its military force it actually bought from the united states government the an ironclad and that ironclad had actually been built in France for use not by the Union, but by the Confederacy. And when it was captured after the war, 
the the union said well we don't need this confederate frigate so the shogunate shows up and says we'll take it off your hands and they said fine you know you pay us cash and we'll we'll give it to you and so that ironclad was originally under the control of the pro shogunate forces under admiral enomoto but when edo fell it was captured by the pro meiji by the pro imperial forces and it was actually used in the blockade of Hakodate. So the whole thing gets all kind of mixed up there. So what do you think happened to Jules Brunet after uh, you know, he gets on his ship and, and sails away back to France? You think he ever went to Japan again? <laughs> I have no clue. Um... Well, you, you, well, what do you think, Nozomi-sama, as a, as a you know, native Japanese, like, if that happened in any other era, that, that's pretty shameful, yeah. right? I mean, you're yeah, yeah. going against the government of Japan, the the ruling, you know, the entity, and you're you're basically being banished. So, I mean, normally you would be exiled and wouldn't be asked to come back ever again, right? What do you think? Yeah, I would. Well, I wouldn't think I wouldn't come back, but one, it's yeah, it's I mean, it's a long way. Once you once you go back, I wouldn't. Well, that's, that's true too. <laughs> risk coming all the way back. Why would you want to come right, back? But, right? but this is where, kind of going back to the to the movie, um, if we kind of bring it back um, to that conversation, what always happens is, um, which also, not just the movie, but in, in in true life too. I think in modern day life, in today's world too, is it always comes back to the human connection that you've built. Um, that. Um, so I wonder if he had any, uh, if he if he formed some, what do you call it, relationships that made it important for him to come back. If he did, that would be the only reason why I would see him to come back. Well, that's actually a an excellent statement and and an excellent explanation of kind of what happened, because you would think after the betrayal and and all of the you know the the fighting against the Meiji forces in Hakodate and everything like that, you would think that. Admiral Enomoto, I mean, in the film, they make it pretty clear that anybody who loses on the battlefield, if you don't die on the battlefield, you commit seppuku, you kill yourself. But that's not what happened to Admiral Enomoto. In fact, Admiral Enomoto became an integral part of the imperial government, and he actually became the minister of the Imperial Japanese mm -hmm. Navy. And he actually arranged for his good friend, Jules Brunet, he he reached out to him and twice Jules Brunet was given was not only forgiven, but he was given awards by the Japanese government, including in 1885, he received the Order of the Rising Sun. So that puts him uh, in a very, very elite category of people. He's a uh, second class, which the only uh, looking at the list of people who have that, the only one that people might know. Uh, who are on that as well. It's a second class with gold and silver star. Uh, Momofuku Ando oh. also has a second yeah, class gold Nishinamen. and silver star. The, wow. Yes, yeah. the Nishinamen guy. <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of other people that I, I don't think the general audience would, would recognize, but but uh, there there are some very cool and very interesting uh, people. But yeah, so like the, the order of the uh, of the rising sun is given to uh, both Japanese and uh, foreigners 
who have brought uh, great, I want to make sure I got the, the termino terminology here, who symbolizes, so it symbolizes the energy of the rising sun, and it is awarded to those who have made distinguished achievements in international relations, promotion of Japanese culture, achievements in their field, development and welfare, preservation of the environment. And prior to World War II, it was also awarded for exemplary military service. And Jules Brunet got one of those. So in 1885, just a few years, uh, let's see, what, 15 years, roughly 16 years after he's fighting against the imperial forces, he gets invited back to Tokyo. And actually, that was the second one that he received. He had come back in 1881 for a smaller award. But in 1885, and that uh, 1885, it probably was awarded directly to him by Emperor Meiji. It, it does, you know, if in the film, I, I don't know, for, is anybody left who hasn't seen it? I don't know. Spoiler alert here. <laughs> the end of the film, you kind of see Tom Cruise kind of retreating back into the beautiful mountains, probably Nagano or somewhere like that, uh, and living out a life of bucolic uh, uh, harmony with nature and, and in the old fashioned ways. But uh, the real guy who actually did Jules Brunet gets invited back by the emperor and gets a great big award, a, a big medal placed on him for it. So I think that's actually in some ways more interesting than the real mo movie. I agree. And I also think it's really interesting, though, um, going back to that time when people were fighting, like we were saying, you know, if normal times, if it was like if this was during the samurai era, during the um, before the before Edo Jedi, if you were on the opposite end, mm -hmm. if you're the your enemy, you immediately get killed or you kill yourself or and all that. But I think this time is such an interesting time, like you said, even though you're fighting on the other side, because they know they're all fighting for this for the same um, ultimate cause or ultimate reason of um, moving towards change and moving towards a better, I guess, a better better, stronger Japan, they all come come together, right? Like that's where they, like you said about um, Enomoto, they, even though he was fighting against them, they, they saw, they knew his talent, they knew how smart he was, how, how, how what a great leader he was. So they needed, uh, needed his talent. Um, so there's other people like that too, right? And, and, and there's stories around that that they were on mm -hmm. the other side, but they they basically formed. It's kind of basically like having Republicans and Demo Democrats in the um, right now. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except there, they actually it's get the along. Same kind of dynamic, right? <laughs> they know you're you're um, you're all looking to you know to better the country. You just have different ways of getting there, but they know you need each other. So like the Satcho and all that, it's it's really interesting to see um, at that time how everyone came together and were trying to really make this old school country that has been you know left behind for hundreds of years and rapidly trying to catch up. And, and I think that's the power of leadership and urgency that actually when people come together, things really dramatically change. And um, from there, you know, the Japanese history, it's it's crazy how quickly they've evolved into this modern day power at that time. Oh, I was just going to say from the samurai to suddenly now you're like fighting with airplanes and all these stuff, which they obviously did not have. Well, along, the, along those lines, I mean, just to pivot off of that, Nozomi-san, I think, well, just a decade later or two decades later, um, the, the Russo-Japanese yeah. war happened, right? And then that was the first yep. Japan defeated a major European yes. or, you know, Western power. And that was 
basically direct impact from I, I don't know if you can credit all that to Jules Bonnet, but kind of that whole era of the of kind of the, the transformation of Japan yeah, becoming that, a modern country. Exactly. Right? So I mean we know what what happens after that too. But yeah. So so quickly how history kind of progressed just within um just several years yeah, it kind of exactly. changed the whole world. Yeah, it's really. not even a, it's not a generation. It's the 10, 20, like those years. Right. And and the important thing uh, we didn't we didn't finish off the the story on the, uh, the on the other side the the, the Watanabe King character who is is modeled on on Saigo Takamori. So Saigo Taka, Taka, Takamori um initially he's on the side that's supporting the the Meiji restoration but then he gets really disillusioned with it. Mm -hmm. Um in fact one of the things that he's really upset about that he doesn't want is he doesn't want mm -hmm. them to build a railway. He thinks that that's a waste of of money that they could be spending on building up military strength, uh, and they're they're wasting it on on a, a railway. And that was one of the things that that really did um, uh, set him against uh, the Meiji uh, the Meiji government. And he eventually uh, says, "You know, I'm I'm taking my dolly and my jump rope, and I'm going home." His dog and <laughs> and he. His dog, his that's dog. right. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And his, and his dog, his dog. I think everybody who's listening to this podcast should should take a trip to uh, to Ueno Park uh, and uh, see the this famous statue of uh, Saigo Takamori and his dog. So, love that one. Um, but yeah, he moves back to to Choshu uh, and starts a private military academy, and all of the other samurai that are like minded. Many of them moved down there with him as well. And that in turn leads in uh, 1877 to the, the Satsuma Rebellion. So they, this guy who previously had fought to restore the Meiji Emperor, actually fights against the imperial forces because he doesn't like the way the country is, is going. Uh, one of the things that he was upset about was the elimination of the rice uh, uh, the koku, the rice stipends that every s member of the samurai class got, and in eighteen by eighteen seventy seven, these have been eliminated as part of the, the the Meiji reformations, and he just won't he won't stand for that. So he arms himself and a bunch of his friends, and they uh, fight in uh, in Kumamoto, and uh, the first battle uh, ends in a draw. But the second battle, uh, uh, which is the, the big one in, uh, in Shiroyama, uh, Saigo Takamori is, is injured severely. And this one we're kind of going on the basis of there could be some legend mixed in here. We don't know if it's actually true. But in that particular case, Saigo Takamori supposedly realizing that he was wounded and that there was no way he could go on fighting did commit seppuku so there is a japanese historical figure who did end his life that way so in the traditional samurai way that could be a story that was made up after the fact we don't we don't know but it's also very interesting that you have the shift in that you had the the westerner who initially was was supporting the pro shogunate forces and maybe in some ways talking about more of the old way, and he winds up being embraced by the Meiji 
government at the end. And then on the other side, the guy who got Meiji into power winds up committing seppuku because he can't handle all the changes that have happened. Well, I think it's really symbolic, like you said, that you know he just couldn't, I guess, accept the change. Was kind of hanging on to the good, the good, good old days. I would just make it really simple. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And I really, I see the parallel in, in especially today, to this, this time that we're in um, 2020 in, in May right now, where there's so much change because of COVID. Um, and if you, you know, the, the companies or the leaders, the people that hold on to their old ways and look back and it's like, oh, you know, it should be this way, or I liked how it used to be, are the ones that obviously no one, I hope no one, um, you know, follows Saigo Takamori in, in the old way to seppuku, but, but there's, it's, it's, it could be death to your career or death to, um, it would be really difficult, you know, to, to enjoy the future because if you keep on holding on to the past. So I think that's such a great learning from there and see those two paths. What happened to him? I mean, Saigo Takamai, there's so many people admire him in Japan. Like like Jim, you said, if you go to Ueno Park, there's a huge, and that's a park that everyone goes to. There, there's the Ueno Zoo's there. There's a, a modern, not modern, the Western um, Museum, Art Museum is there. That was part of the, the old Tokyo. Um, there's a lot of culture there and people gather around. But, you know, um, and in his hometown, he's, um, there's so many people admire him, but going back to, but you know, kind of feel like he was left. He couldn't, he couldn't let go of, of, and just couldn't evolve and, and see, I guess he lost hope in the, in the future. And um, I just feel a lot of learning as leaders and in, in, in time of change. That's definitely, yeah, it's an important lesson for us to, to take going into the future. Exactly. As you said, that, the past is something to recognize and, and the good parts of it uh, are necessary to, you know, that you should cherish them because they help make your identity. They don't determine your future unless you let them. Yeah. Well, just kind of maybe final kind of topic that we could talk about is, I mean, the story about Jules Brunet is, um, I mean, it, it could have only happened at that time. Right. I mean, I mean, obviously, that the era was the era and we're living in a totally different world today. But like, um, I mean, everything around him basically it had to have gone the way it did for him to be kind of part of the whole storyline of, you know, bringing Japan into kind of um, modern times. And I don't think anything like that could happen today. Could it? Well, I, I don't think that you would have an armed rebellion against the government in Tokyo. I sure hope not. <laughs> Maybe a, a, a virtual takeover. I don't know. In these- <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But you know, you know what I'm my, like. My point is like it, it was like almost like destiny that that he he was there at that time, and it, it was him, his kind of personality and his background that kind of I don't know. It, it was I don't know. It's how it's funny how kind of history history happens, right? I mean. If it wasn't it, it it does, and it, and it's remarkable that the two groups that he betrayed, both the Meiji government and he betrayed. Don't forget, he betrayed the French <laughs> army too, because the French government told him come home, and he said, "Nah, mm. I think I'm better off here, thanks." And he was 
he was totally forgiven by both. He wound up being awarded by both. He wound up fight, uh, fighting in the Franco-Prussian War. He was uh, taken captive by the Germans for a period of time, was repatriated uh, and, uh, and given awards by the French government as well. So this is a guy, I mean, not only you're, you're, you're totally correct that there are certain periods of time in which people can participate in things and that the right person at the right place at the right time. But, but additionally, there are some people who are just so lucky because think mm. through history of all of the people that have done what he did. If, if you, yeah. if you're a deserter <laughs> to the military at that time, you probably would be executed by firing squad. If you, if you, if you angered the Meiji government, you know, there's a good chance that you would be put to death by them as well. And not only was he not put to death by either one of them, he was, he was welcomed back later with open arms and awarded. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> really? just go with what your, your gut tells you. And, and sometimes it works out, <laughs> I guess is the best thing. <laughs> it worked out for him. <laughs> Kids, don't don't try this at home, though, right? <laughs> no, no, don't try it at home. <laughs> so, that said, I don't think that you could have fit all of that into a movie, even of two hours and forty minutes in length. Uh, I think that some of the license that was taken was for I, you know, we've we've thrown out a number of movies here, and I think that the the Last Samurai was more historically accurate than. Than uh, the forty-seven Nonian version with with Keanu Reeves uh, and and a number of other ones as well. So it, it, at least it had that, and I think that a totally historically accurate um, Western film mm. would take a very special director, and it would take a very special, most importantly, it would take a very special group of producers and the people who give the money to the producers to make the film to have the commitment to follow that through. That's, that's kind of the reality of Hollywood is that Hollywood's a business and they're not going to make a film that they don't think they're going to make money on. And if you went for super historical accuracy and you cast some French guy instead of Tom Cruise, I don't think the movie, it may have been an even yeah, better movie, but it, probably wouldn't have made as much money at the box office. But, but what I hope that we can do and, and with Japan in particular, because of course this is Japan America society of Georgia, uh, but not just with Japan with other places as well. This is what makes world history. So fascinating is that these things actually happen stuff that you would never imagine. Um, and people actually did them and we never really find out about them and there's just so much richness in there not just in the u.s but in the entire world that i wish that particularly in america but in other places as well that the movie going audience would be just a little bit more discerning so that they could take just something just a little bit more um, substantive, a little bit more uh, historically accurate, that they didn't have to tart it up so much. But that said, I, I am glad that we didn't have to watch <laughs> a movie with that Tom Cruise absolutely. pretending to do a French accent for two hours and 40 minutes. That would have been painful. So this has been a great conversation. I've really appreciated it. I, I, 
Yoshi, we've all kind of given, uh, Yoshi, do you want to go first to have some, a few last words? Yeah. So I think, um, I really enjoyed today's podcast and our conversation with professor Jim Hoadley and, uh, the lovely Nozomi Morgan. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, history is really interesting in that. I think, um, you know, sometimes history and then the, the stories that actually happen, um, you know, throughout, um, you know, various countries, uh, modernization, uh, sometimes it's, it's even more entertaining and it's even more kind of peculiar, uh, than, than Hollywood itself. So, um, but, but, um, you know, but I think at the same time, it's really important for, uh, going to give some props to Tom Cruise, but, um, you know, it's important for, for Hollywood to kind of have these movies, um, to kind of, for people like us and people, you know, who may not have a lot of historical perspective on, on Japan or, or, or any historical event to, uh, to do some kind of digging into after they watch the film. Cause, um, actually knows, knows I had no idea about much of this era and, uh, kind of much of the details behind Jules Brunet before the movie, but after watching the movie, you know, got me interested in kind of doing some research on my own. So, um, so I know Hollywood has to make money and kind of, uh, you know, bring in the big bucks, but, um, uh, but I think, you know, they also do uh, play an important role in trying to, you know, uh, raise interest and raise awareness about things that actually happen in history. And, um, uh, at the same time, I think, uh, you know, maybe Hollywood is running out of ideas, uh, and history is uh, the perfect place to get ideas on, on new movies like this, right? or join our podcast in the future, but, um, but, but yeah, so, but, um, you know, kind of what we talked about, it's, uh, kind of really interesting with Jules Brunet and, um, you know, how he came to me, I, th I think everything around him and, you know, he himself, you know, he had to be that person at that time period, everything around him happening at that time for, for kind of those historical events to happen the way it did. So, um, it was just kind of, uh, very interesting how how things work out and um you know part of um why we are all here um with the japan american society and the work we do i guess you know some of it you know uh, maybe it's 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 me being a dreamer but you know part of it is because of uh, what happened with uh Jules brunet and uh what happened in japan during the meiji restoration okay okay nozomi yeah um well I love what your son said. Uh, so it's hard to follow that one. But I just think it's just amazing um, to see how obviously he wasn't like one person. He didn't change the whole course of Japan. But it's, it is amazing to see how one person with his talent, his passion and his um, courage, you know, being a foreigner in Japan in this foreign, foreign country, far, far away from his homeland, um, how that would change like that one, like it's like a ripple effect, right? Like when with one person um, landing in Japan and making a big difference. And so I thought that's fascinating. Also, um, I love to seek the learnings in that and also gives me hope and also love to, you know, sh um, invite our listeners to really think about how you as an individual, like what you can do, um, and how that can how with, with what the power and the gifts and the talent that you have, um, 
the impact that you can make. So just know that, um, you know, one person can make a difference. And I think history, this is a great lesson that history, um, there's evidence in history. So I, I'm, I'm so glad we're, we we did this today. This was, this was wonderful. It was really um, entertaining and very uh, inspirational as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I very much appreciate the two of you taking the time uh, to listen to me drone on and on. But uh, I, I really, I, I love history in general. Uh, I love, uh, I love American history. I love Japanese history. I love all types of history with, with all of their warts and, and, and everything else, because all countries have uh, things in their past that they can be proud of. And they have things in their past that maybe they should say, maybe we, we don't want to do that again. And I think that really it makes me kind of sad to see in recent years, how people seem to be kind of forgetting history that don't no longer seems to be, um, it no longer seems to be a cool thing that people want to talk about. Uh, and that disturbs me because, uh, I think it was Santayana who said those who forget, uh, history are condemned to repeat it. Um, uh, uh, it's a podcast. So if somebody remembers that I quoted that incorrectly, I'm sure they can, they can nail us on that one. But, uh, yeah, it's not just that, that you're, that if you don't have, if you don't remember history, you're condemned to repeat it, but it's, it's a big, beautiful, fantastic world out there. And if you're interested in Japan, as we all are, obviously, and if you're listening to a podcast like this, you probably are as well. Dig, you know, dig in. There's so much in there uh, to, to find. And, and there's so many interesting things, so many fascinating characters. And I hope that this catches on and we get to do more of these because there's so many other uh, Japanese historical figures uh, that I really want to talk about and share with people so that they can understand. Uh, because people who go today and they're just like, I want to go hang out in Shibuya. Shibuya is fantastic. I love, there's nothing wrong with Shibuya, but I also kind of want to hang out. Uh, I want to see and understand Taira no Masakado's grave. That might be a good story for Halloween uh, and understand who that person was and, and why that grave is important. And, and, and it's really a, a it's a, it's an awesome story. Uh, the people who came before us, they, they paved the way for us to be here. And then we can now are now making other people's history. And I think it's great for us to know what others have done. And also in a way, hope and plan that the history that we are making today makes a better future for people tomorrow. So with that, uh, I think I'll wrap it up and just uh, once again, thank uh, my, my, uh, my esteemed guests, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Nozomi and, and, and Yoshi, and uh, hope that we can do this again uh, sometime soon. Thank you, yes. everybody, for listening. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Nozomi-san. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you, Asan. Podo is a production Japan America Society of Georgia, a certified 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to promote mutual understanding between the people of Japan and the state of Georgia through establishing and promoting ties and programs in the areas of culture, customs, education, commerce, and politics. 
While there have been reasonable attempts to ensure the accuracy of the historical information presented in this podcast, the presenters of Rekipodo are not professional historians. Rekipodo is presented for entertainment purposes only. No guarantee of accuracy is stated or implied. The opinions of the speakers are their own and do not represent an official statement of the Japan America Society of Georgia. Production of Rikipodo is made with the assistance of the Georgia Tech Center for International Business Education Research. The music of Rikipodo is provided by Peritune under a Creative Commons license. Peritune can be found on SoundCloud or P E R I T U N E dot.